Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, posted March 31st, 2022, titled End of the End of Kalam, featuring Matt Dillahunty, William Lane Craig response. Bill, we've been hearing a whole lot about Matt Dillahunty, probably because he is the most popular atheist popularizer out there these days. Have you been hearing a whole lot about this Matt Dillahunty? I had to listen to myself talk when I recorded it. That is a lot. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians, along with today's special guest, Matt Dillahunty. So a few months ago, Matt, you recorded a video on your Atheist Debates channel called The End of the Kalam Cosmological Argument. Yes. Now, you didn't call it the death of the Kalam Cosmological Argument, but it did make me think of the scene in Monty Python's Quest for the Holy Grail, where the person calls out, Bring out your dead! And the cart rolls by, and someone on the cart, and in this case, that's William Lane Craig saying, I'm not dead! Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not it, that's, that is very a funny way to do it. I, I, I think it, this is probably the closest to a proper clickbait title I've put on any video ever, because that's just really not an interest of mine. But it was important because it's like, ah, oh, the end of the Kalam cosmological argument. And if you listen to like even in the opening remarks and in the closing remarks, I point out how it isn't dead. It just should be. Well, it should have been dead from the beginning as an argument for the existence of God. Shortly after you recorded that, you caught the attention of William Lane Craig, the primary proponent of the Kalam cosmological arguments, and he decided that on his podcast that he needed to rebut what you said. And I know that not a lot of people listen to his podcast, but he is the primary thinker in this category. So I thought I would belabor this death a little bit further and have you come discuss it with me. Yeah, it's really strange. I don't listen to Craig's podcast, and I don't, I don't even know anybody who does. And so you were the only person... And this has been months now that this happened. You are the only person that came to me and said, hey, William Lane Craig responded to you. What do you got to say? Can I have friends who follow what Craig has to say and everything else? Evidently, they figured it wasn't a big a deal. For the record, Craig's been invited to debate me many times, including by Christian pastors who consider him a friend and were, were really surprised that he refused. And he used to refuse because I don't have a terminal degree in a relevant field. And when I pointed out that this was a problematic reason to refuse anything, as if we were going to debate humanism, there's not a terminal degree, although you could probably consider philosophy degrees. But it's also a rule he had ignored for plenty of other debates. And so he changed this rule to saying that he doesn't like to debate atheist popularizers rather than academics, a rule that he's also been flexible with for others. Now, I have no interest in debating Craig. If it happens, it happens. I doubt it will. But this whole using popularizer thing as a dismissal is incredibly amusing. And I know it's going to come up later about who actually is the popularizer here. Perfect. Well, let's dive right in and see what they have to say, starting with some incredibly loud music. Yes, he claims that the Kalam cosmological argument uh, has now been pronounced dead. 
Uh, and I just want to alert our listeners to the fact that when a popular critic uh, says that an argument which has been debated for centuries by some of the greatest intellectuals in Western world history, and which is still a matter of uh, debate and is defended by prominent uh, philosophers and physicists today, when somebody says it's dead, uh, that it's come to an end, you can be pretty much assured that he's just bloviating um, or that he doesn't really understand the argument. The fact is, this argument is going to continue to be discussed uh, long after you and I and Matt Dillahunty have passed off the scene. Yeah, it's funny. I agree. The argument is going to be discussed for a long time after we're off the scene. What I was saying was that it should stop being used specifically as an argument for the existence of God, because that's not what it is. And the next clip where they continue on the podcast clearly states this, and then Craig agrees with it and says that he's been saying the same thing for years. So Craig may have gone into this cold, I suspect, that he hadn't heard the clips, which means he's thinking on the fly. And while some of us are good at that, yeah, we'll, we'll see how this goes. You have everything that begins to exist as a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. It's, it's an undeniably valid syllogism. So why am I saying the Kalam is dead? What's the end of the Kalam? Well, it should have been dead from the beginning as an argument for the existence of God. Because what is also undeniable about the Kalam is that it never mentions God. Not the word and not the concept, though some people would like to weasel that concept in. The funny thing about that is that that's exactly what I've said, uh, that this is an argument which proves that there is a personal creator of the universe that has many of the properties of God. So because my claim is undeniable, Craig notes that he said, quote, exactly what I've said, but then without missing a beat, he immediately follows this up by claiming that the argument proves a personal creator with many of the properties of God. This is the dishonesty that I'm actually objecting to in the video. The Kalam, as stated, doesn't mention God in the premises or the conclusion, something Craig agrees with. It also doesn't mention that the cause must be personal, and yet Craig injects right away that this proves a personal creator. It doesn't argue for any qualities of that cause, which Craig dishonestly labels a creator. It just doesn't. This is something that Craig and others do with separate arguments, and that's fine. Present those arguments, present your reasons for why you think the cause that you've determined with Kalam is personal and has the qualities. But even go to William Lane Craig's Wikipedia page. The Kalam cosmological argument is sitting there like it is presented when he does it in debates with two premises and a conclusion, structured argument, and then follow it up there in a couple sentences. And this leads us to conclude that it's a personal, timeless, tasteless, blah, 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 and that sounds a lot like God. That's the dishonesty that I'm actually objecting to. So for Craig to acknowledge that he said exactly the same thing and then immediately inject that dishonesty, I mean, this is why I did the video. So thanks, Bill. But if you don't want to call this being God, that's just fine with me. That has no effect upon the soundness of the argument. Well, I didn't claim that it did have an effect on the soundness of the argument. So it's weird for Craig to seem to throw out an implication that I was wrong at another point when he hasn't shown I was wrong at any point. He's done th nothing but agree with me and then shift the focus to other assertions. To say that this has no effect on the soundness of the argument, 
I agree and never said otherwise. So why are you bringing it up as if I did something else wrong? Now, I'm not necessarily convinced of the soundness of the early premises, but let's grant that. Let's just say that, yep, if something begins to exist, it has a cause, and the universe began to exist, therefore the universe had a cause. What's very significant about this clip is that he actually grants the truth of the premises for the sake of argument. So the argument as such isn't dead at all. He's quite willing to grant that it's sound. I'm really baffled sometimes because Craig here, instead of starting off by showing where I'm wrong, decides to discuss something else entirely. He thinks that granting the premises for the sake of argument, something that I say and something that he repeats, is equivalent to me being willing to grant that the argument is sound. He said, what's significant about this clip is that he actually grants the truth of the premises for the sake of argument. So the argument as such isn't dead at all. He's quite willing to grant that it's sound. No, sir, I'm sorry this is confusing for you, but me granting the argument for the sake of the argument is not me concluding that it's sound. Does Craig really not comprehend the difference between I accept that this argument is sound and... I'm willing to grant the entirety of this argument for the larger discussion because even if true, it doesn't achieve the goal of proving a god. If Craig's confused about that, he's not qualified to be reviewing this or anything else. What do we know about the cause of the universe? Assuming that the cause exists, what do we know about it? I don't know. I don't have any way to investigate it. Oh, well, we can definitely know that the universe isn't the cause of itself. Well, I'm not convinced that we can definitely know that um, because causality is necessarily temporal and temporal causality breaks down at T equals zero, which would be the origin of the universe. But his complaint is that there's no way to investigate the nature of the first cause. And what man fails to realize is that the arguments that I present in support of the two premises, which he's been willing to grant, have certain implications for the nature of the first cause. So my next sin is that in critiquing the column that I presented, I failed to consider Craig's other arguments in favor of the premises. I, I guess I should have done a video that says, all of Craig's other arguments are dead. Welcome to the end of all of William Lane Craig's arguments. But I didn't. I posted one about the Kalam. I was reviewing this particular argument, which I presented, which is frequently presented by callers to the various shows I host. I wasn't claiming to be responding to Craig's entire life work or anything else. The rest of his comment in this clip suggests that it's possible to investigate the nature of the first cause, which, by the way, assumes there was a first cause, something he's fond of doing which I'm not convinced of, and is a rebuttal to something that I didn't say. I didn't claim that it was impossible for anyone to investigate the cause. I noted my own limitations, something Craig doesn't seem to recognize in himself, as he's been corrected live in debate with Sean Carroll, an actual physicist. Where Dr. Craig says that the bordeaux guthrie lenkin theorem implies the universe had a beginning, that is false. That is not what it says. What it says is that our ability to describe the universe classically, that is to say not including the effects of quantum mechanics, gives out. That may be because there's a beginning, or it may be because the universe is eternal. And with a note from Alan Guth in that debate. One of the authors of the bordeaux guthrie lenkin theorem, Alan, what do you say? He says, I don't know. 
whether the universe had a beginning. I suspect the universe didn't have a beginning. It's very likely eternal, but nobody knows. Now, how in the world can the author of the Bordeguth-Belankin theorem say the universe is probably eternal for the reasons I've already told you? The theorem is only about classical descriptions of the universe, not about the universe itself. And by both Alan Guth and Alex Vilenkin, two of the creators of the Bordeguth-Belankin model. So that means that inflation must have had a beginning. It doesn't really say that the universe must have had a beginning. The theorem proves that inflation must have a beginning, right? Uh, the, the universe uh, as a whole, um, it doesn't, the theorem doesn't say that. That Craig continues to misrepresent. The difference between Craig and myself here is that I'm not willing to pretend that I know more about physics and quantum mechanics than the quantum physicists do. Well, that's your mistake right there. But also, we're sloppy with language. Because if the universe, if everything that is in our local presentation of the universe existed as essentially a singularity, and it expanded, then what you're talking about is not the cause of the universe, but the cause of the expansion of the universe. And I don't know what would or could cause that. And I don't know that anybody else does either. And yet, they will argue on behalf of a god. He argues here, Kevin, that the argument does not prove the cause of the universe, but the cause of the expansion of the universe. And I think that's simply incorrect. The truth of the two premises, whatever begins to exist has a cause, and the universe began to exist, entails that there is a cause of the universe. So it logically and necessarily follows from the premises that there is a cause of the universe. So here he's responding to me saying that the second premise, the universe began to exist, is possibly incorrect in that it may have always existed and that what we're talking about is merely its expansion. Presenting that hypothetical model as a contradictory hypothesis to the second premise. And his response is seemingly wrong at every turn. He says, I'm claiming that the argument does not prove the cause of the universe, but instead proves the cause of the expansion. No, I'm not. I'm saying that if the universe didn't begin to exist, but merely expanded, then the argument is unsound because the second premise is no longer considered true. When he says, The truth of the two premises entails that there is a cause of the universe. He simply ignores the point being made that the second premise may not be true, and by the way, the first might also not be true. So in my objection to saying, hey, there's a problem with the second premise, there may be a different explanation other than the universe began to exist and that it always existed in some form and expanded. How did you rule that out? His response is to just assert that he thinks I'm incorrect and that the truth of the two premises entails that there is a cause of the universe. How much more of a bald-ass assertion can you get? It's like, nuh-uh. 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 I said so in the argument originally. But even if you were able to list the characteristics of the cause of the expansion of the universe or the cause of the local presentation of the universe or however you wanted to word it, even if those, even if those characteristics were similar to the proposed characteristics of an unproven God, that still doesn't make them identical. Oh, well, it had to be something timeless because time didn't exist before the Big Bang. Okay, well, it doesn't even make sense to talk about before the Big Bang, and, and maybe that cosmology is not correct, but it has to be timeless. Okay. Um, but really, in that context, all it means is that it's not bound by the time within the local presentation of the universe. It doesn't mean that it's not bound by any time. It doesn't mean that it's not bound by meta time in a metaverse or anything like that. 
It just means that X is not bound by the time constraints of the local presentation of the universe. But that's obvious and true for anything that would be this change since time began, our local presentation of time began then. In my work, I have insisted over against naturalists and physicalists that time itself cannot be identified with physical time, uh, the time of our universe. But the arguments that I present against the infinitude of the past show that the temporal series of events must have a beginning, and that therefore the cause of the universe exists changelessly sans creation. And therefore, on a relational view of time, time cannot exist in the absence of events or change. And therefore, I think it is very plausible that the cause of the universe uh, doesn't simply transcend our uh, physical time in this universe, but more uh, metaphysically, that the cause of the universe exists timelessly because it exists changelessly alone. Okay, cool story. Now go do the actual physics work that moves your proposed view of time out of the realm of armchair philosophy or a former president of the philosophy of time society and into the world where actual physicists specializing in temporal studies agree with you. Again, Craig isn't a physicist and neither am I, but at least I'm not claiming that I've cracked the model. And in his, the response just before this one, Craig ended by uh, saying the question of why the universe that came into being is expanding rather than, say, contracting or steady state is a question to be answered by physics. Yes, it is. As is all of this speculation about time. It's funny that he recognizes that and then keeps going on about, well, you know, in my study, in my work, this is going to come up several other times. Craig took this a little personally in thinking that if I respond to a version of the Kalam cosmological argument, that somehow in his head I'm trying to debunk everything he's ever said or done which is not the case. You've used a, a seemingly obvious and yet still questionable syllogism to, to determine the universe must have had a cause. And then you go and put on a smile and say, that cause must be God because it sounds a lot like God. Well, why is that cause not a multiverse? Why is it not a physical process that's beyond our current ken? Why is it a mind? And why is it in particular a mind that's absent a physical form with power over everything, which provides no clear evidence of its existence, and yet somehow inspires people to different conclusions about reality? It's got to be the most confused and confusing agent thing ever. Well, then Matt says, well, why is it a mind? Well, in my published work, uh, I present three independent arguments for thinking that the cause of the universe is a mind. First, because the only two things that could be accurately described as timeless, spaceless, and immaterial are either uh, an unembodied mind or consciousness or else an abstract object like a number. Excuse me? He claims that only two things could be timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. And those two things are, number one, all abstract objects... Number two, an unembodied mind or consciousness. Now, first of all, in these responses to the other questions, Craig seems to know a great deal about what's required procedurally in order to begin a universe. I don't know where he got this. It seems rather convenient. But to say that only two things could exist that are timeless, spaceless, and immaterial, abstract objects, and an unembodied mind, 
Please show your work, Dr. Craig. I'm not aware of any evidence for an unembodied mind or consciousness. I'm aware of lots of claims about an unembodied mind or consciousness. And I'm aware that you and others are claiming this is one of the only possible answers that there's an unembodied mind. But I'm not aware of any evidence for that proposition at all, let alone that it's one of the only two things that can exist. This is what Craig and others do with the Kalam, is they present a formal structured argument and then smuggle in all of the God stuff with bald-ass assertions like this. Ah, well, you know, we, we know that the only thing could be timeless, spaceless is either an abstract object, which can't do anything, or it's an unembodied mind, which sounds a lot like God, which is precisely what I accuse them of doing in the clip he's responding to. This is becoming a trend. Every time I say something, Craig comes in and demonstrates that I was right while lamenting the fact that I'm not familiar enough with his work as if this video was about him. You know, it's gratifying, Bill, because apparently people are calling in and, and using the Kalam, discussing the Kalam with him. They'll call into the television show. But, you know, Matt and his co-host, they're, they're kind of on the hot seat there. They have to defend naturalism, atheism, yeah. and uh, and all this. But people are calling in and saying it must be timeless, spaceless, you know, uh, <laughs> and immaterial. And so he's he's hearing that. But yeah. then he says his complaint seems to be, uh, yeah, but but you're getting outside of the syllogism when you get to this other stuff. You're you're yeah, adding it's, stuff. It's very clear that he's never read my published work uh, in which I argue at length for each of these attributes uh, that I ascribe to the first cause. Gosh, once again, it's all about Craig. And even after his co-host correctly points out that I'm responding to other people, people who call the shows. It's, oh, I've, I've, he's clear he's never read my published work. Well, I have actually read some of Craig's work. I'm more interested in what physicists say about physics than about what Craig says about physics, because Craig has doctorates in philosophy and theology. He's a bright man. I'm not claiming he's a dullard, but he's not a physicist. And when the physicist whose model you're citing in support of your view claim that they disagree with you, I think I'll side more with them until you've done the lab work instead of just speculating. He cites the board guth Lincoln model, and both Guth and Vilenkin have pointed out that they disagree with his understanding of what does and doesn't qualify as a possibility for a multiverse. And I believe there's a debate. I haven't finished watching it. Someone referred me to it between Alan Guth and Sir Roger Penrose about whether there's a multiverse or a cyclic universe. And despite, I think, I hate to say this because I'm, I'm getting this secondhand, but I, I'm under the understanding that Craig has claimed that both Guth and Penrose agreed with him on this, when seemingly in this debate, they both publicly disagree with him. It proves that the expanding era of inflation that we're part of must have a past boundary someplace. Uh, that does not necessarily mean the universe had a beginning. And then you and I, we, we talked about, there's a great video out there, which is a whole bunch of physicists talking about the Klom cosmological argument and what they get wrong. Right. It's called Physics and Philosophers Reply to the Kalam Cosmological Argument, and I'll link to it in the description. It's new, and if you haven't seen it yet, it's definitely a must-watch for anyone interested in these kind of arguments. Al-Ghazali's argument was pretty good, uh, given the assumptions he was making. It's just that I don't think we now have any reason to accept those assumptions. So everyday experience furnishes all kinds of generalizations that are inconsistent with the conclusion of the Kalam argument. And it's just arbitrary to choose the generalizations that you like from everyday experience and ignore the ones that don't fit with your conclusion. All I've said in this video is that this argument, which doesn't include God in its premises or the conclusion, isn't an argument for the existence of God, but is being used to smuggle in arguments for the existence of God. 
That's it. That's the point. And that's exactly what Craig's doing in response to everything I've said. And I think it's telling that Dr. Craig chose to respond to my end of the Kalam video instead of addressing this massive video that's out with countless experts pointing out how he's wrong about the physics. Actually, to his credit, since we last spoke about this, Dr. Craig has started responding to the physics and philosophers video. Yes, when I first heard of this video with this stellar lineup of physicists and philosophers, I was very impressed. I mean, it looked like William Lane Craig against the world. That's great. It gets him closer to doing the legwork that I suggested and the lab work that I suggested he do. But if all he's going to do is say, I think these physicists are wrong and here's why, without any lab work or science behind him, if he's going to try to come at the physicists with philosophy, he has dramatically misunderstood the power of philosophy. And this is coming from a philosophy geek like me. I I love it. But you're not going to take down physicists by saying, I don't have any degree in this. I haven't actually done any lab work on this. Here, let me tell you why philosophically I think your models are not correct. I don't think that's going to go anywhere. And I think one of the attractive features of the argument is its modesty. Um, It doesn't try to prove any of the moral properties of the first cause of the universe. Why would I spend time reading the work of someone who thinks that a particular argument is attractive because of what it doesn't cover? What kind of philosophy is this? Is the structure of the argument valid? Are the premises accepted? Those are the questions one asks when evaluating arguments. Validity and soundness, not attractiveness. Not, this one is appealing because we didn't try to throw morality into it as well. This is the language of propaganda. If you're picking arguments because they're attractive, maybe you, Dr. Craig, are the popularizer. (laughs) It doesn't try to prove that this cause is morally good for example. Um, And in that sense, uh, it doesn't prove the existence of God if we think of uh, God's goodness as an essential property of God. But it does give us this first uncaused, timeless, spaceless, uh, immaterial, enormously powerful personal creator of the universe, which I think no atheist uh, would be willing to affirm. I'm sorry, didn't I just say a little while ago that In addition to the Kalam argument, they'll go on and say it does give us a first uncaused, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, enormously powerful personal creator. Isn't he literally doing what I've accused him and others of doing? At no point, sir, does the Kalam cosmological argument demonstrate that the cause is timeless, spaceless, immaterial, powerful, personal at all. And whether or not an atheist would be willing to affirm it, is yet another red herring that you're throwing in. It is maddening. And it makes me strongly question the honesty of people when my objection is this argument doesn't do A, B, and C, and you say, I agree, I've been saying that for years, and that's why I have all this other written work. And then, in summary about how attractive the argument is, your view is that it's attractive because it didn't throw in this moral stuff but it does give us a first uncaused timeless spaces bull, bull, bull. How can you sit there and out of one side of your mouth say, ah, the argument doesn't do this, and out of the other side of your mouth go right back to saying it does? This is, it's embarrassing for this sort of response to be so absolutely affirming of what my objection was. The Kalam cosmological argument is 
deader than a dead thing when it comes to demonstrating that a God exists. But it's very, very, very much alive in convincing apologists and people who already believe that they're on really firm footing because it just seems so intuitive. Of course, the universe must have had an explanation. Something can't come from nothing. You hear these things all the time, and they're asserted and they're accepted, and yet there's no demonstration that they're actually correct and that they necessarily lead to a god. So... I'm pretty much done with the Kalam cosmological argument. Now, if somebody calls into the show and presents it, I'll give some shortened version of this, as I've been doing a little bit. But there were people who were confused as to, how can you dismiss something that's so prevalent? I mean, William Lane Craig, of all people, this is like his favorite argument. Yes, it is. Because then it looks like he's accomplished something when he's accomplished absolutely nothing. Well, in this clip, I take it that Matt's main complaint is that this argument only convinces uh, apologists. Um, And by calling its proponents apologists uh, rather than philosophers, um, what Matt is doing is attempting to uh, dismiss these people uh, in a very condescending way. And I think our listeners probably can recognize that this is nothing but bluster Uh, on his part. The fact is that this argument uh, and its premises are defended today by a constellation of very prominent uh, philosophers and uh, physicists. Let me just read to you from the Cambridge Companion to Atheism, published by Cambridge University Press. This is a book on atheism. In the chapter... Uh, written by Quentin Smith. This is what Smith has to say. He writes, A count of the articles in the philosophy journals shows that more articles have been published about Craig's defense of the Kalam argument that have been published about any other philosopher's contemporary formulation of an argument for God's existence. Surprisingly, This even holds for Plantinga's arguments for the rational acceptability of the ontological argument, and Plantinga's argument that theism is a rationally acceptable basic belief. The fact that atheists and theists alike cannot leave Craig's Kalam argument alone suggests that it may be an argument of unusual philosophical interest or else has an attractive core of plausibility that keeps philosophers turning back to it and examining it once again. Ah, uh, here, let me tell you once again how important I am and how important my work is. Even atheists recognize it. Let me show you how popular my argument is. Atheists, they just can't keep it alone. Why, Bill Craig, you old popularizer, you. Uh, wrong. I don't have to keep coming back to the Kalam cosmological argument because it has some robustness. It's the theist contacting me to parrot what they've heard and couldn't rebut that I have to address. I haven't spent any time on reevaluating the Kalam from the moment I discovered that it doesn't address God at all and that everything else is in some secondary argument. I just have to keep explaining the problems with this argument. Problems Craig seems to agree with on one hand and disagree with on the other, depending on which sentence he's uttering. The argument doesn't present any properties of the cause, but he keeps claiming it does, even in his response to me complaining that they keep adding properties to this, he does it again. We recognize it's a popular argument, 
Probably because you've picked an appealing argument instead of one that can be clearly shown to be true. I've never claimed the cosmological argument. I've never claimed the Kalam cosmological argument didn't have an appeal. In fact, they quoted me saying directly that the Kalam cosmological argument is deader than a dead thing when it comes to demonstrating that a God exists, but it's very, very, very much alive in convincing apologists and people who already believe that they're on really firm footing because it just seems so intuitive. Craig responds to this by suggesting that I'm just dismissing everybody as if apologists rather than saying it convinces philosophers. Well, I don't care if it convinces philosophers or apologists or people who don't have any understanding of the subject or people who've been studying it for years. What I care about is, is it demonstrably true? And I'm not convinced that the argument is sound, but even if it were, it's not an argument for the existence of God. Maybe instead of saying, oh, I've used it and it has convinced people because I'm not asserting that it hasn't convinced anybody, maybe you could spend some time doing the legwork to show that all of the secondary arguments that you use to support your actual conclusion are more important than the Kalam. Because the Kalam begins with and ends with, therefore the universe had a cause. Well, for most people that seems intuitive. For most people, they're like, well, of course, there had to be some cause to the universe. What kind of cause could it be? And then you spend all your time telling them what it must be on subjects that they don't understand, on subjects that you, by the way, don't have a degree in. If you're not going to debate me because I don't have a terminal degree, why should any physicist ever debate you? But they do. Why do they keep doing it? Why is it that Craig's defense of the Kalam has been published about more than any other philosopher's contemporary argument? formulation for the existence of God, because it's one of the most popular. That doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you've actually demonstrated to God or stumped people. We can keep talking about it over and over again as why is this argument, which should be dead, still appealing? Which, by the way, is almost verbatim what I said. My big frustration here, and it's simple, is People keep asking me, hey, will you debate William and Craig? Sure. When I go to seek debates, I largely don't care who the person is, unless the person is just absolutely terrible. And then, you know, there are some people I've refused to debate because I don't want to be on a share stage with them. But by and large, when I'm preparing for a debate, I'm preparing for the topic, not the person. So I don't care that much if Craig ever debates me or not. I've already talked about problems with Kalam, and I've already talked about, you know, some of his standard shtick. I didn't make this video as a response to William Lane Craig. I made this video because there are countless people who Craig and others have reached who keep calling into the various shows about subjects they don't understand, thinking that, aha, atheist, everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause for existence, and that cause must be timeless, baseless, blah, 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 and that sounds an awful lot like God. Well, does it really sound an awful lot like God? I'm not aware of a God. I'm not aware of what properties a God has. You've just asserted there exists agent A with properties P, and those properties are consistent with the properties that we find are necessary in order to create a universe. Well, you haven't done any of the work. You haven't shown that the universe was created. You haven't shown that it wasn't just an expansion. You haven't ruled out a multiverse. You haven't debunked the physics that seems to suggest that your understanding of physics is wrong. 
and then you haven't shown that there is a God or what that God's properties are or how you know that those properties are, it's like you're you engaged in a philosophical exercise and said, you know what, despite the fact that there's no empirical evidence for this, despite the fact that maybe there's no good reason for the average person to think that this is the case, I can't think of a better explanation than something with these properties. And by golly, something with those properties sounds a lot like God. And so now my work is done. Well, I would argue that your work hasn't even started. As a matter of fact, I've said before, if there were a district attorney and somebody said, hey, we would like you to bring a case against God for existing, they haven't even begun the discovery process yet. They haven't even shown probable cause yet. We're not ready for a trial. And Craig and others are out here thinking, ah, the trial's over. We've won. Victory in Jesus. I proved him with thinking. That's not the way it works. Thank you, as always, to the generous Matt Dillahunty. And if you want to watch or support Matt, those links are in the description. And if you're looking to dive deeper into the shallow pool that is the Kalam, tap on the thumbnail for the special playlist I made now with Matt's response to documentaries and debates mentioned in this video and other Kalam responses from this channel. Tap the link, and I will see you over there. Later. Later.